I became a father like almost five years ago. And so now I, when I think about things, I think about them so much differently. And when I look at Christ and the church, you see the, the husband and wife, and you also see the parenting aspect of it as well, where Christ being the father and us being his children. And so when I, and I look at all these things, and man, I love my daughter, and I have a son, and now we've got another daughter coming in 10 weeks. And uh, I think it's less than that now. And I think about that relationship, and I think about the commitment and the covenant of that. And so what I'm saying is, is that as much as Christ loves us as a church, like he's given each one of us that same love. And, and I can honestly stand before you, and even though I don't know all of you personally, I love you. Because I know who you are because Christ made you. And I know what he desires for you because that's what his word tells us. And so I want us to be thinking about that as we, as we look at this church. Because a lot of times when we think about revelations, we think about hellfire and brimstone. We think about judgment, finality. You know, skin, sin's going to be done with. But we, we, I think we lose it with the context of what's happening is that God loves his creation. And he's making all things that he made new again. He's making it right. And we, we have to remember that as we're reading through this. So as, if you're in verse 12 of chapter 2, the, the subtitle you're going to see is the church in Pergamum. And that's where we're going to start. So the church of Pergamum is the city of Pergamos. Okay? So a little bit of history of it is that it's a major city. Um, a few weeks ago, Jason spoke about Ephesus. Well, if Ephesus is New York, Pergamum is Washington, D.C., okay? Just to kind of give you an idea, it's a major city. Um, within this major city is the major Roman authority and rule, and it is very, very heavy with imperial worship, pagan worship, um, and, and it's a very influential city. I mean, it was the capital for over 250 years of Asia, so this is not some podunk town that we're talking about. This is a major city. So when we think about this, we need to, make sh we need to understand this is a very influential city in this time. Um, so it had the second largest library with 200,000 volumes. Um, the only one that was bigger than that was in, uh, Alexandria. And the important religious centers and the pagan ones that I want to mention is um, the, the worship of Athens. And there's one that's Asclepios. And this is important because I want us to remember this one. It's, it's a healing God. And people used to come from all over and all around for this healing. And what they would do is they would allow serpents to um, move all around them. And they believed that the serpents held power of healing. I would rather be sick. But they chose to believe in this. And, and this, this, this God, Asclepios, is still recognized today in the medical community. If you've ever seen the medical ID with the staff, there's a serpent that wraps around it. That's where this comes from. So we're seeing that there's an influence that's happening in this city that, that predates history, or not predates history, but is moving forward in history. It's still influencing today. We also see um, Dionysus, the god of drunkenness, Zeus, was a very big uh, pagan worship. They, they had, if you ever get a chance, Google search uh, pictures of the city, there's massive temples everywhere. Zeus has this massive throne that they had made up for him. But the primary pagan religion was the imperial cult. And to what's, what we're saying when, we, when I reference imperial cult is it's the worship of Caesar. 
This is the only city, that, or at least the first one, that was allowed to build a resurrect a temple unto Caesar who is still alive. Most of this, the worship or temples that were built were for those who have passed on to do in remembrance of them. But this is one they did in 29 B.C. Caesar as Augustus is still alive. And so they worshiped him. And so when we think about the city, um, their identity, their religion is wrapped up in imperial cult worship. The reason this is important is during this time, there's immense persecution. See, I grew up in a small town. Uh, it's like 2,000 people. And I can still count within city limits, which is not much, 13 evangelical churches. That's a lot of churches in a small town. It's a lot. But I would never qualify my town as evangelical. Their identity is not wrapped up in the church. Um, it was a farming community, ranches, they had lakes. So I would more recognize it as that. Every Friday night, high school football. In the wintertime, you know, there's basketball. But I wouldn't recognize it as a church of just evangelical natures. But this city, this is all they're known for. I mean, this is the city that's producing the influence for the whole region. And they're wrapped up in their identity of being Roman and worshiping Caesar. And so if you're not a part of that, then you're against that. The Jewish people at this time had a treaty. And the Jewish people are, are at least treated better because they have an ancient history. Like they have a heritage. So they're, they're somewhat important. But Christians, this is new. This is unseen. It was looked at as a mere superstition. But you have to understand that these aren't believers who just came in. These were citizens and we're going to be looking at that as we get ready to dive into verse 12 and 13. So what we need to keep in mind is that the Jewish people were protected, but Christianity had no such background and was labeled enemies of the state, which is also the church in some sense of the imperial cult, not the church of Christ. So let's dig into verse 12. Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... So this is Christ speaking, and, and when we see the words of him, this is who we're talking about, has a sharp two-edged sword. And Jason's referenced this, it's already been mentioned once in Revelations um, previous to this. And the Roman sword was a symbol of authority. I don't think we can quite appreciate what it represented in our time, but back then that was the power that yielded and, and, and controlled everything um, when, when Caesar put forth some decoration or decreed some law, it was the Roman soldiers and their sword who carried it out. It wasn't Caesar himself. The sword was meant to gain compliance or take out any opposition that was there. So when we look at the double-edged sword, it was a symbol of authority, and, and specifically in this, Roman authority. So the Roman soldiers entrusted to carry out what the emperor has said. But when we look at verse 12, we're not looking at a Roman authority. We're looking at Christ. We're looking at the authority of the risen Savior. We're looking at the creator God who has made all things. And like I said before, when we look at the whole of Scripture, he's taking what he made good that was marred in sin, and he's going to remake it. This is the Christ who's speaking. He says, out of my mouth is a two-edged sword, so out of his words is going to come judgment. 
So it's not somebody else carrying out his authority. Christ himself, with these powerful words, is going to bring both judgment and salvation. Christ is the true judge. He's the ultimate power. And whatever Roman authority wants to say or whatever Roman authority wants to decree, they cannot change that he is the Christ. And by his words, he will bring judgment. When we look throughout Scripture, we look in John, we look in Colossians, it's, it's all about Christ, and, and, and he holds and he, he created and he upholds and he holds all things together by the word of his mouth. So we know that his word and his, his judgment, like a two-edged sword, will be true. It'll be just. It is powerful. So let's move on to verse 13. And this is where it's important. I know where you dwell. Christ is looking at this church, his church, and he's saying, I know where you dwell. These are not passerbyers. These are citizens. Most likely, these are citizens who grew up in this Roman imperial cult slash pagan worship who have now been converted to Christianity, and now they're considered enemies of the state. And I was just talking about uh, with Jason the other day about small towns. Like My parents uh, were from Oklahoma City. They moved to Shakota, um, where my dad set up his business, and like to this day, they're considered outsiders. Think about that. To this day, they're considered outsiders. My sisters and I, we grew up there, and we were semi, we had passports, all right? So we were kind of part of the town, but we were still not as part of the town as the generations. And so think about this. So that's, that's just, I'm almost a passerby in my old hometown, these are people that this is where they live. This is their home. This is not some short-term mission trip where they sleep out on the ground for a little bit and they get to wear a badge on their shirt. This is their home. So they're, they're dealing with the cultural significance of what it means to be Roman. They're dealing with the cultural significance of what it means to live in a Roman society under Roman rule, but yet they have to live for Christ. So it says, I know where you dwell, and here's where, he, where Christ is recognizing where they're struggling at. It says, where Satan's throne is. There's a lot of speculation on what this means, and one of the, the, the scholars writes about how Satan's throne could very well be representative of um, the imperial cult worship and, and how the pagan religions were affected there, and very well be, may be, I think the key that we have to really just remember where Satan's throne and where he dwells is, is that Satan is very active in this town. He is very active in the persecution and trying to stop the growth of Christianity. Christ has already won. He's already buried dead, resurrected, and is sitting at the right hand of God. So right now he's trying to, he's trying to crush the church. He's trying to stop it from growing. So you, this is where Christ praises the church. He says, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Christ praises the church. He says, even in the midst of persecution where Satan dwells, he says, even with that, he says, you held fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Um, so when we, we look at what's going on, and, and we look at the church, he's praising them for sticking to it. And, and he's showing us that it's a tough place to be at because this is where Satan's dwelling. But then also we have this follower, Antipas, who's killed for his faith. 
And, and as we move on in the scripture, Antipas the martyr, is, he's, he's in the section of the verse that's about a praise. Think about that. Someone who's died for their faith, he's, he's in the, the section of being praised for. There's a tradition, um, we don't know if this is true or not, but they say that he was put inside of a brass bull and it was burned alive or heated to the point of death. And, and just think about whether that's true or not, that you're, you're one of uh, your members of your church one day with you is now gone. The fear of being caught or the fear of persecution, I mean, your brother just died. So it's automatically natural to think, I could be me. And Christ is praising them, saying, you held fast to my name, and you did not deny the faith. And so he's encouraging them because to be a part of the Roman society, it was a duty and a responsibility to do imperial worship. It was part of your civic duty. It's what made you Roman. And for you not to be Roman meant you were an enemy of the state. You were an enemy of your fellow citizens. It wasn't a lighthearted thing to be Christian because that means you had to deny your Roman Authority, your Roman identity, your Roman brothers and sisters and country. Christ here says, Antipas, my faithful witness. Christ refers to himself as a faithful witness in Revelations 1.5. And it's through this word, and it's not until later in the third century that this idea of witness gets turned into martyr. And so Christ is referencing Antipas and himself that, the, that he is a martyr for the faith. It says, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. And this idea of holding fast means to remain faithful. It, if you need a picture, it's to grasp forcefully. It's to remain firm. To do so, you have to remain firm in something, correct? If not, you're just going to be tossed to and fro. Verse 14. Here's our conjunction. So he just praised them. He says, you will remain faithful. You hold fast to my name. Even in the midst of Satan's dwelling, even in the midst of Antipas being killed for his faith, he says, but I have a few things against you. And what he's doing is he's raising the seriousness of the situation. He says, those things are good, but here is where we need to look. A few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The church of Pergamon tolerated the Nicolaitan heresy uh, and the teachings of Balaam. Now, we don't know exactly what these teachings were. It's not mentioned here in Scripture. Um, maybe that was on purpose. Maybe they didn't, we didn't want to promote this teaching. But what we do know is that it was not Scripture. What we do know is it was a heresy that they were allowed to come into the church. And so uh, Balaam's teaching is so had to be rebuked for their weakness. The purpose here is so that they understand that there's a seriousness in taking on these heresies and making them a part of the church. The, the story of Balaam, if we look back in Numbers 22 through 24, we see how the king of Moab has called this Gentile prophet because he's, he's having issues with the Israelites. So he calls him, and he, what he wants him to do is he wants him to curse 
the Israelites so he can win. But God said, no, that's not how this is going to work. If you remember, as Balaam's traveling, God gets his attention. And when God gets your attention, you need to listen. So here we have Balaam, who's supposed to be cursing, but all he can give is blessings to Israel. So what is the thing he does? It's a plan. And it's a very crafty plan, actually. It's not do we kill the Israelites. It's how do we set up stumbling blocks for them. And what it was is, they would set women outside the camps. And what would happen was is the Israelites began to intermarry. And when you do that, it's not just that they intermarried Israelite and Moab. It's that their, their teachings, their culture, their belief systems began to become intermingled, just like this church here. And so that's why he's given this warning of, of Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans. And, and we see the other churches, they've successfully fought off these teachings, but here at Pergamum, they've taken them on. And see, persecution is tough. Persecution, um, it can be ultimate. It can be it mean in your life. It can mean your business. It can mean... A lot of things that this world has to offer, but it can never mean your salvation. And what this church did is they, they traded persecution with compromise. Because they thought that compromise is better than dealing with the persecution. It's much harder, they thought, to fight off these heresies than it was to just kind of deal with them. So they traded persecution Persecution for compromise. The danger went from being external to becoming internal. The issue is not the existence of false teaching, but that the allowing the false teaching to have authority within the church. I'm not a doctor, but I play one in real life. This past week, I got like one of the worst cuts like ever. And you know which one I'm talking about. It's a paper cut. It's right here on my thumb. And... Um, it was pretty bad. It was bleak at first. Um, and it still stings when I put a hand sanitizer on. I know your thoughts and prayers are with me. <laughs> that's not a big deal. You know, like a scratch or a cut. That's not the issue. I, I've gotten, like, where I'll be working, and I'll cut my arm, and I didn't even know it. That's not the issue. But what do you do with a cut? you got to clean it. Why? Well, my medical, this is my medical advice to you. If you don't clean it, it gets infected. And an infection is far worse than any cut. Because a cut can be dealt with externally. But if you don't deal with it externally, then the internal issues become. And if you can't get a grasp of the, the infection, what do we have to do? We have to cut it off. So what this church has done is they've taken the persecution that was happening externally to them and now they have allowed it inside. So now there's an infection. Now there's an issue that is, that is happening from within. So it wasn't the existence of the false teaching. It was the allowing the false teaching to come in and take root and have authority in their life. And when that happens, serious problems begin to happen. Because if you know if you get an infection in your body, it spreads. And it can spread quickly. That's why we have antibodies. That's why we have medicines to help us. So what Christ is saying is like, you did all these things great, but 
here's, where, here's a few things that I have an issue with. That you have allowed Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have held some of the teachings of the Nicolaitans. See, it's even the idea of eating the sacrificed food, because we've already heard before, eating the food wasn't an issue. It's whenever you take on the belief. It's whenever you take on the teaching. It's whenever you begin to practice the false teaching. So we looked at teaching this, the, the idolatry, the immorality related to the practice rather than the doctrine itself. The heretics were apparently teaching that there was nothing wrong with participating. I mean, after all, it was Roman duty to do so because um, even most Romans did it out of a civic duty rather than actual worship. It was just, it was their identity. It was who they were. So I want to skip forward. And let's look at how this manifested itself in a historical context. So if we look at um, the Church of Pergamum, and we were laid, like Jason was speaking um, the past few times, and we look at where it falls in a timeline of history, it falls around 300 A.D. to about 600 A.D. And in and, and some Christian um, historical uh, textbooks or whatever, some may even look at this as a great period of where the persecution was removed for the church. But we're going to look at, at how this plays out and the conditions during the period. One, politically, the church became the legal religion. That sounds like a good thing, right? In 324, Constantine declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. That sounds great, right? It sounds like we're making progress because the persecution has been lifted. But what we come to find out, though, is that all of these moves to make things official they had ulterior motives. He then repe repealed all edicts of persecution against the church from 313 to 324. Christianity was just not the one of many religions. Well, now they've taken all the pagan cults out. So this is good, right? This is good. We're getting rid of all the pagan religions. But in 324, he had finally become convinced that Christianity would be a great help to him. There's the motives. And he established its official by decree, and he enacted himself as the head of the church. So we even see in historical references that some of the pagan priests and some of the pagan um, leaders of all the other cults, like, they just flip-flopped over. They became priests themselves. And so pagans were banished from courts and Christians placed in posts of honor. Constantine offered his gold and his patronage to the church. So this is, this is the shift that's happening, and this is what's the conditions of what's going on in this period. And then doctrinally, the church became pagan. And here's how. Constantine became the official head of the church. Although he was still head of the Roman state and authority, he was also head of the church. Pagan priests became pastors with the church. Um, belonging to the church was merely a matter of joining. There was no um, like connect class like what we do here. There was no... Do you believe this? It was a matter of just coming and joining. Belonging to the church uh, where pagans were forced to join at the point of the sword. So it's, it's interesting how it flip-flopped. Pagan festivals became Christian festivals. It sounds good, but what they did is they compromised. They traded persecution for compromise. What they thought they were doing, which would, they thought was saving the church by just going with it, was really hurting the church. 
Spiritually, the church was polluted with the world. This unholy alliance has continued in and has continued forward. We look at um, 2 Corinthians 6.14, or 6.14 through 16, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will, he- and I will be their God and they will be my people. This is God's desire for the church. It, it's not intermarrying uh, the, the religions. It's not becoming um, less persecuted. It's, it's him being our God and us being his people because he's chosen us. Because his work on the cross he deserves and has the right to be our Father, our Savior, our Christ, our King. Because of all the things that were happening in this Roman Empire during this period of history, it made it impossible for true holiness to survive. This made it impossible for true unity to exist within the church. It made it impossible for the true word to be preached. Because we also see during that time, the people didn't have God's word. They relied solely upon their, their priest to reflect what God is saying. The same corrupt men that were once pagan uh, worshipers. This made it impossible to distinguish between the genuine and the fake. And it's no wonder that Christ is coming and saying, my judgment is going to happen. Repent, for I am coming quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church thought it was establishing its survival by adjoining Roman paganism. But what it was actually doing was destroying itself within. So what is the solution? If we look in verse 16, it's where we find it, and it's simple. Christ says, therefore, repent. He says, if you repent, if not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. What he says is true, and what he says he will do. And we've already recognized, we look at Scripture, that Christ is the authority, and we see what he can do. It's with the words of his mouth we see that the heavens and the earth were made, and we see that it's all by him that everything's held together, and everything was created for him, and that he's going to restore it one day. So when he says, repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them, with the sword of my mouth, we know that he means it. This idea of repent is simple. It means to change. Change our previous ways, both spiritually and how that spiritually becomes um, our ethics and how we act and how we, how we live our lives. There's both a present judgment and a final judgment that is coming. And it's coming by the word of his mouth. It's simple. It says, Therefore, repent. Christ made the gospel so easy for us because all that he has done, we simply believe that he is who he says he is. What he's done is more than enough to save us from our sins. 
So what we're doing is when we repent is we're turning away from what we once were going towards. And now because of our faith and our belief in who he is and what he did, we are now turning towards him. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jason mentioned this, um, I think it was a few weeks ago, this idea of here and this, the way this word is being used. It's a, it's a very powerful word. It's not just like, I, okay, so if you're a parent, you've had the answer, I heard you, but they didn't really hear you. They just, it just kind of went in one ear and out the other. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about hearing in the sense that we hear and we obey. We, we were taking it in, and now we're putting it into practice. So it's a much stronger than just, yeah, I heard you. It's I hear you with the strong meaning that I'm going to obey you, that I'm going to put into practice what you are telling me. So he's saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And there's a few things in this, this, this verse of 17 that we have to kind of look at and deal with. And there's three things. One is the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name. Um, like so, a lot of things in Revelations, there's, there's different interpretations, there's different views. And we're just going to look at one for the hidden manna, which is, this is believed to be the, the manna that fell in the wilderness that was placed in a jar and put in the Ark of the Covenant. And I think the reason this is important is because one day Christ will return. That's important. One day Christ will return. It's that final judgment, the thing that he's coming to do to make all things right again. That final judgment so that when Christ returns, he will place the Ark of the Covenant in the new temple. So we see this, this, this eschaton that is coming and that's when we, when we see this hidden man, I believe that's what it's referencing. And then we see the white stone. When the gladiators were free, they were giving stones with their names on them and their date of release. That's pretty cool. I think it's also symbolic because a stone is more permanent than a piece of paper. So I think it has an everlasting or at least a long-term meaning to signify something important. There could be a contrast between the permanent nature of stone as a writing surface, because um, even in Pergamum, they wrote on everything. Some say that parchment paper was actually derived from there, so that, that's a reason why this could be significant to them. But I think it points more to the fact that it's a significant piece that is to remember it, that's not perishing. And more importantly, among the three of those is a new name. A new name is given to the overcomer, a new identity given to the one who hears Remember that word hears and believes. The church is today is faced with compromise. When I, when I think about other churches, um, when they place culture over Christ, that's a church of compromise. When, when we see materialism, when we see that what we have or what we can do to attract people becomes more relevant than teaching and preaching God's word, I think we have a church that's become compromised. Because when we make culture more relevant than Christ, the church alters the word of God instead of being in opposition to culture. 
And when we alter the word of God, we have social gospel. We have seeker-friendly churches that their, their sole purpose is to get people to come. They get people to come with this watered-down teaching. And they only, all they're doing is allowing infection inside. So we, we see um, reducing or replacing of key doctrines. And what we see is ultimately we see a church that's replacing persecution for compromise. Syncretism. Growing up, I can't tell you how many times I used to see meetings where we argued about carpet. Um, I had, we had one that was a youth committee that they were debating whether or not we should go to this other youth group rally because we didn't want the kids to see all the cool stuff they had. We were fearful that they were going to take our kids. Culture over Christ. And I think about myself, and I'll share this with you. I got saved at a young age, and, and God used me in a lot of ways. And I think one of the biggest struggles I had as I, as I got older, and the praise of man is a very powerful thing. It is very powerful. And, and, and I was responsive to that. I'm a very sensitive person to other people's um, characters and feelings and and I'm very responsive, and I believe God gave that to me because I loved, because he gave me a desire to counsel. But the twisted side of it, if, if I allow it to be used in my own flesh or allow Satan to use it, is, is I know how to get the praise of man. And so the praise of man was a very strong influence. So no longer did I do things because Christ called me to it. It became more of performance. It became more of, if I can really nail this, I'll get that attaboy. I compromised in times of my life for the praise of man rather than for the glory of God. So this morning, as we wrap up, and I'm going to have the, the worship team come up, I want us to think about the fact that Christ loves his church. And, and we see this idea that a, a double-edged sword coming and, and it's the word of his mouth that's coming to judge us. And he's, he, I mean, Christ uses the words, I'm going to war against them. We don't necessarily get this image of a loving father or this loving husband coming for his bride. But what it truly is, is love. That he cares about the church, not to allow the church to stay in a state of compromise. Um, being a father... Um, I have the responsibility to care for my kids. And, and one of those aspects is disciplining. I don't enjoy it. I really don't. Um, especially because first, our first kid was a girl. And there's something about a daughter that it's like she's fragile, you know. You, and as a dad, you just want to protect her, you know. You don't want to hurt her. But as a father who loves her, there's the aspect of discipline that she needs not because, you know, of little things. True disobedience, rebellion in our heart. And it happened so early, I, I wasn't ready for it. I really wasn't. But when, when she does something out of an act of rebellion, out of a true understanding that I am being defiant, we have discipline. And it hurts my heart to do it because she looks up with her eyes and she's, she's got tears in her eyes. And, and I can also see in her mind this 
this idea that's running through her head is like, you're my father, but at this moment I feel separated. I feel like there's this wedge. Our relationship has been broken. And I see it in her face because she doesn't, she, she doesn't respond the way she normally does because she's thinking about what she did. And I believe in that moment it's an identity that she's trying to figure out is, am I just this bad kid? But every time we have a moment of discipline, I set her down and I tell her that I love her. I remind her that who she is, she's my daughter. This morning, Christ is saying the same thing about our church. This morning, Christ is saying the same thing about each one of us. And as the band comes forward, there's one thing I want us to think about. In your own personal life, is there compromise? Have you traded the truth of God for the convenience of man? Have we traded following Christ wholeheartedly because it's hard? Or have we, we traded that for the easy route that it's just easier to go with the flow? It's easier not to interact with our culture. It's easier just to keep our mouth shut and just say, you know what? I'll pray for you. I hope that works out. So as we, we respond in this time right now, I pray that we would allow the Spirit to search our heart. And if there's compromise in your heart this morning, I pray that you would confess that to the Lord because he loves you and he wants to remove that. And he wants to restore that new name, that new identity that he says, I'm giving to you because you're my child, you're my church, and I love you. So let's stand and let's sing.